Let's turn to God's Word, to the book of Romans, and chapter 2. And if you have the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1129, Romans chapter 2. And I don't know, Stephanie, if you're able to, but if you could put up verses 1 to 5 on the screen, that would be great. If not, it doesn't matter. Um, And then after that, it will be verses 6 to 11. We're going to look at these verses. But let me uh, read them, first of all, Romans 2, verses 1 to 11. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. We'll leave it there, and we'll come and do verses 6 to 11 uh, in a while as well. Religious people can be a real pain. We can be arrogant, self-righteous. We can come across as cold and judgmental. And then you've got religious people who try not to be these things, and they can be a real pain as well because they end up judging people for being judgmental, which is a bit of a contradiction. And that's what Paul is is coming to deal with here, at least a bit. Also, just as a kind of introduction, I guess all of us love the idea of equality, because that's what our society, you know, equality, diversity, tolerance. And I love the idea of equality, but here is a problem for our culture and our society that without God, you don't have it. In fact, without the Bible's teaching, you don't have it. Because the Bible teaches that we are all equally made in the image of God, male and female. That's of the essence of what it is to be human. But our culture cannot teach equality because science doesn't tell you that people are equal. In fact, science tells you the opposite, doesn't it? Some people, believe it or not, are better looking than me. Some people are faster than me. Some people are smarter than me. And science actually tells you that people are grossly unequal. History tells you that people are grossly unequal. Sociology tells you people are unequal. So when people talk about equality and they say they're basing it on values of science and so on, they're talking rubbish. They're being completely inconsistent. They're taking the idea of equality, which is a biblical idea, and they're trying to make it a secular ideal, which just doesn't work. But here, the Bible says that we are equal. Now, uh, as we... Uh, look at this, it will, um, that may not be as comforting a teaching as we think. It all sounds great. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is, he is he's been telling the church in Rome that he wants to come to them, he wants to share the good news about Jesus with them, and that he's now doing it through this letter before he can come personally. And he began in a way which looks at the whole of society, and he's looking at Roman society, and he's saying, this city's a cesspit. And these are all the things that are wrong. 
And you can imagine the people from a religious background saying, amen. Isn't that the truth? There are some objections to this, though, and Paul begins to deal with these objections. In fact, my own view is that the book of Romans is just a series of answers to questions, and, and, and I think that it is really important that we learn to question. I think there's something wrong with people who just sit and listen to God's Word and go, oh, yeah, fine, 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 because it's a bit like the husband who's listening to his wife and goes, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes. He's not saying yes. He's, he's just not listening. And I think sometimes we're like that. I think when we question, it indicates that we're beginning to think about what God is saying to us. And I think there are two great objections that come in here. One, I think, is from people who might be inclined to say, yes, you are right, but there are people who are good. So, for example, F.F. Bruce, the biblical commentator, talks about Seneca. And he said that Seneca, the great Roman philosopher might have listened to Paul's indictment and said, yes, that's perfectly true of the great masses of the plebs. But, and he said, I, I, I would concur in that judgment you pass on them. But there are others, of course, like myself, who deplore these tendencies as much as you do, and we believe in living ethically. And then I think there's a second group of people, and it would be those people within the church who have come from a Jewish background and who have been used to religion all their life, and they're saying, yes, that is correct, but for us, it's not true. Last Sunday, when I preached on that last bit of Romans 1, 28 to 32, uh, somebody said to me, and she's very closely related to me. In fact, she's my mother, and she's not here, so I can say it now, and she doesn't have the internet, so I can say it even more. <laughs> but she's my mother, and she said to me, that seemed a bit gloomy and negative, and I said, you ain't seen nothing, mum. I, I was, all the stuff I left out, you know. But I understood what she was saying because it, it, it was heavy going. And of course it was heavy going. But a religious person sometimes will go, yeah, that's right. What a horrible world we live in. And aren't these people terrible? And you kind of like hearing about the bad things that people do because you go, oh, thank the Lord I'm not like that. And Paul comes to deal with that objection just now because the answer, some people will say, well, the answer to all this trouble in society is if we had more religion. And Paul's answer is no. No, more religion is not the answer. In fact, religious people can be very good at condemning and judging. Now, I want to give three examples because in case you're, you're thinking that's not me, I'll give you three examples which are, uh, I think, um, fairly common, and you can probably think of others as well. I can think of the religious person, the Christian person, the person brought up in a, in a, in a, in a Christian church. You're here on Sunday, and um, you go home, you see the news, you hear about things that are going on in your society, and you just go, the world's a terrible place. Isn't it awful? And aren't these people awful? And I think what Paul says here is a word for you for those of us who are like that. And then you're here as a Christian, but to be honest, you're full of anger and you're full of bitterness and you're full of frustration because your husband is not the way they should be, 
because your wife is not the way they should be, because you don't have a husband, because your children are dreadful, because your parents are awful, because your boss is dreadful, because your workforce are dreadful, or whatever, that there's, there's a whole lot of anger, and it doesn't take much to get you going. It doesn't take much to upset you. It doesn't take much to annoy you. But whilst externally you can be all smiles as you come into church, all it takes is one statement out of turn in the car, and that's you, snap. There's an anger there. And you, you, are, you are angry with the world. You're angry with the people around you. Why, are, why do they do to you what they do to you? And it's hard to get rid of. And then, and this is the third group, and this is possibly the hardest of all, and um, I don't want to be unsympathetic about this, but you've been hurt. you're somebody who's been hurt by the church, what you call the church. It's people within the church, and they've not treated you well. They've hurt you. You trusted them. You believed what Jesus said about this community of, of peace and of harmony, and they let you down. They wounded you. They hurt you, and you, you, you just can't get over it. In fact, there's this increasing phenomena of Christians who decide that they're not going to go to church anymore because they don't want to get hurt anymore, or whatever the reason might be, or they'll set up their own group or whatever, and they, because they, they basically are, are judging the whole church. They're saying, this church is, is not worthy of me, or actually, this just is rubbish. I'm so hurt by the church. And although they have genuinely been hurt, it is still a judgment. Now, I would suggest to you that in all three of these instances, the answer is not to look at them directly and counter them directly. So, you know, you want to condemn the world. Well, let's look at how the world can be better or is better. You're angry at your family. Well, let's look at how family relationships can improve. Or you're hurt at the church. Well, let's see if we can get the church to be better. I don't think that is the answer. I think the answer is what Paul says here, which requires us to develop a degree of humility which enables us to experience all these things. It's not that they're false. It's not that we have to just get over them. But it enables us to see them from a broader perspective, from God's perspective. So having said that, verses 1 to 5 teach us this very simple thing. Everybody's equal. Religious people do not have the right to pass judgment on other people because we do the same things that they do except with a religious veneer. I always remember being deeply disturbed by uh, something that George Bush said. Now, again, without saying anything about the politics, it was talking about the Iraq war, it was he was talking about Korea, and he basically said, there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. There's the evil empires and there's the good empire. And I just thought, this is such a shallow and superficial view of the world. Now, he was a professing Christian, and when I heard that Tim Keller had been asked to go uh, to the White House to teach him the Bible, I thought, thank the Lord, because he needed to get this grasp that you don't just say to people in Iraq, we'll give you democracy, and then you'll all want to be like us, because we're good. Humility would tell you to say, actually, we're not good. We are all equal. There's no good guys and bad guys in that sense. And that's very, very hard. Um, if you look at verse 1, it says, you therefore have no excuse. 
Now, the therefore, uh, as Sinclair told us a while ago, you always got to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And it does seem a kind of strange one because he talks about people who are filled with every kind of wickedness and people who are sexually immoral. And then he's saying to the church, you, therefore, have no excuse. Well, why do they have no excuse? Well, verses 18 to 19, I think, are the key. The wrath of God is, in in chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Because what that's saying is that all of us are covered under Romans 1, 18 to 19, that we suppress the truth by our wickedness. In fact, the interesting thing is that those of us who uh, come to a church like this Those of us who know the Bible, we know more of the truth, and therefore we are more guilty if we act against that truth. I want to ask you a very, very personal question, and it's one that uh, when I looked in the mirror this morning, I did ask myself, and I think this is very true. Have you ever noticed how quick we are to be harsh in our judgment of others and so lenient towards ourselves? We excuse in ourselves what we condemn in others. Now, let me give you just uh, a couple of examples. You could be the kind of person who there's children in church and you get so annoyed because they're making a noise, because they're jumping on the furniture, because they've left sweets lying around. And, you know, by the time you go out of church, you're you're fit to kill somebody because you're so angry until you become a grandparent. And then all of a sudden, your little darlings are ripping the furniture apart with knives. They're head-banging strangers. They're, they're doing all different kinds of things. And you just go, oh, look at wee Johnny. Isn't he wonderful? As he pogos from the balcony. Well, what's the difference? You see, we, things that are close to us, things that we like, we excuse. But others... We get really angry about. Luther gives another example. He talks about rich rulers who complain of their subjects being greedy and not paying their taxes. And yet the rulers are hoarding up wealth for themselves from those very same taxes. And he says they just don't see it. They go on about people being dishonest and greedy. And yet that's what they are doing. Freud Uh, called our condemning in others the faults we see in ourselves, projection. We project onto others. So sometimes I remember in the Free Church General Assembly one time, there was a man stood up, an elder stood up, and he gave one of the most bizarre speeches I've ever heard. I was so thankful the internet wasn't around in those days and that the press weren't there that particular day. Because as one of the the, the old elders beside me said, oh, well, that boy's got problems. (laughs) And he certainly did. You could tell it was projection. He was going on about something just obscure and weird and trivial. And, and you think, well, he's got a problem. Well, Freud's thing of projection, Freud was way out of date. You're far better off. You're going to get much more up to date if you come to the Bible because Paul is telling us about projection. He's telling us that we, we, we do this. We get angry about the things that we do ourselves or that we're scared of doing ourselves. Now, in these verses, I'm just identifying three things that happen. 
First is this, when we judge others, we're judging ourselves because we do the same things. Now, some people say, no, no, wait a minute, I don't commit sexual immorality. Go back to that list um, that was there. I don't uh, do these particular things. But yes, if you look at the list, the list includes greed and arrogance and hatred. And yes, you do. And you say you don't do sexual immorality, but Jesus lifts the standard way beyond the Old Testament. And by the way, those of you who say, well, I like the standards of Jesus. The Old Testament's too harsh. The Old Testament is easy compared with what Jesus teaches because the Old Testament gives us outward standards, really. And Jesus says, in terms of adultery, for example, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. So anyone here who's looked at pornography, anyone here, you've, you've broken that commandment. In fact, I very much doubt that there's a single one of the commandments that everyone here hasn't broken in some way or other by the standards of Christ. So, for example, with idolatry, anything we put before God, even our religion, is idolatry. And there's the paradox that we can have stuff in the church that we really care about. And yet that can be more important to us than God and Jesus. And that very quickly becomes idolatry. John Stott puts this beautifully when he says that we, when we judge others, it allows us both to retain our self-respect and to commit sin. It's a convenient arrangement, but also both slick and sick. It's why the prostitutes came to Jesus first, because they didn't pretend that they were right. They knew that they were in the wrong, but the religious people thought they were in the right and were able to use religion to justify their sin. Now, I I want to say this to you because I say it to myself. How many times have I taken the word of God? How many times have I taken the good things in the Bible and used them as an excuse to justify my own sin? We all do it. Now, please note This is not an attempt or a call to suspend our critical faculties. It's not to say that we should never, ever judge. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 7. I'm going to quote you the most misquoted verse in the whole Bible, in my view, in modern society. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, that's saying what Paul is, is saying here and I think it's reflective of where Paul is at. But it doesn't mean you don't. When someone goes, don't judge. Well, Stealing is wrong. Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge. That's not what it means. Jesus in verse 6 goes on to say, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. I prefer pearls to swine. It just sounds so much more ugly. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you in pieces. So Jesus is saying, don't judge. And then he's saying, don't give your pearls to pigs. And he's talking about human beings. That's pretty judgmental. It seems So when he's saying, do not judge, he's not saying, don't suspend your critical faculties, but he's saying, in effect, what Paul summarizes here very succinctly is, don't condemn. It's not that you can't see things that are wrong. It's not that we're not to criticize at all, 
but it's a call not to condemn because we're not God, we don't know, and above all, we are hypocrites. We set a high standard for others and we set a comfortable low standard for ourselves. Now, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and there are some people who go, well, I know I don't do that. I've got a terrible opinion of myself. I think I'm a scumbag. I'm awful. But you're proud that you think you're a scumbag. And you condemn other people for not thinking that they themselves are scumbags. And you're just caught in the same trap. Just you're more miserable. That's all. You're doing exactly the same thing. It's just so, it's so difficult for us. Because the problem for us when we judge is invariably the judge is always as guilty, if not more so, than the people they judge. Because look at what verse 5 says. It says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. Your hardened and impenitent heart. Paul knew that. He'd been preaching to religious Jews for over 25 years and he found it hard. Let me tell you this that the hardest people to preach to are people who are religious people. And I'm not meaning particularly Muslims or Hindus or even liberal Christians. I'm talking about people who think that they are Christian, people who come and hear God's word, people who like coming to church, like coming to this church. And you've heard it all so many times before. But your hardened and impenitent hearts mean you're like James, the wee boy from Taylor's Lane, you go away from church without Christ again. There I am, I walk without Christ again. Despite the fact that Christ has been proclaimed to you. So when we judge others, we're judging ourselves because we do the same things. Secondly, the self-righteous judge falls under God's judgment. Do you think you will escape God's judgment? You pass judgment on them as a mere human being. Are you thinking you're going to escape? No, you're not. So Paul's saying to particularly, I think, his, his, his Jewish readers, just because you're Jewish, just because you know about Yahweh, just because you know about God, do you think you will escape judgment? No, you won't. And that's really important. Our religion won't save us. And then thirdly, the self-righteous judge, this is really interesting for me, shows contempt for God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. How does that work? Well, what's happening here is Paul is quoting from one of the intertestamental books called The Wisdom of Solomon. But thou, our God, art true and patient and kind and ruling all things in mercy. But even if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. And what is being said here is that we're showing contempt. Now, how are we doing that? We're doing something that some Christians are very good at. They're good at using theology to justify personal sin. We're saying God won't judge us. We're saying that God is, is kind and tolerant and patient and he won't judge us. And instead of showing honor for God, it shows contempt. Instead of showing faith, it's presumption. Because God's kindness, as he says in verse 4, is meant to lead us towards repentance. I shiver when I hear preachers like me stand up and denigrate the word of God by simply saying, do you know, it doesn't really matter. God's kind. 
God's patient. You never hear anything of repentance. I heard an evangelical this morning on the radio and, and you know, so much of the stuff was good. But there was nothing there that would cause anyone to repent. In fact, there was no need for repentance. Because all we have to do is be nice and kind to people. And everything will be okay. The paradox here is that as you listen to this, I want you to grasp hold of this. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would take it and apply it in your life so that you would feel something of the power of what God says to you. And that you don't cover it over by, oh, it's okay, what a relief, God's kind, so it doesn't really matter. Yes, it does matter. It really matters. It really matters what you do with God's creation, what you do with yourself, what you do with other people, what you do with him. We're not to show contempt. That's why Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know that story of how the Pharisee came into the temple? He came all the way down to the front. He said, Lord, I thank you that I give my tithe, I thank you that I do this and that I do that. And then he looks back and he sees the tax collector coming in, sneaking at the back, and he says, I thank you that I'm not like him. And Jesus says the tax collector came in and he just, he could hardly lift his eyes and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the one went home justified, the other didn't. The church is full of people who think they're okay with God. And yet, let me tell you this, the person who may wander in off the street or the person who's here who's just absolutely heartbroken at their own sin, there is far more likelihood that you will go home right with God than the self-righteous religious person. I was going to resist quoting Calvin, but I couldn't. So I love this. This reproof is directed against hypocrites who dazzle the eyes of men by displays of outward sanctity and even think themselves to be accepted before God as though they had given him full satisfaction. You see, the assumption that I won't be judged because I'm religious is challenged here by Paul. You're not saved because you're a Jew or because you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a good pagan or a Christian in the commonly understood sense of the word. You're not saved because of that. In fact, in some ways, your condemnation may be even greater. So, we're all equal. We all stand before God, whether religious or not, whatever our background. You can see, here's the interesting thing. There are people here from all different backgrounds, and I don't know you. I don't know your circumstances. Most, I don't, you know, even those I know fairly well, I, d I don't know what's going on in your life and in your heart. But I absolutely know this, that no matter who you are, all of us stand guilty before God. So let's look at verses 6 to 11 then, because he goes on. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. We're all equal. Second thing is this, God is just, God is fair. He doesn't show favoritism. He judges, it says here, according to truth. And there are two outcomes, it's very straightforward. There's eternal life for those who do good and there's wrath for those who do evil. And in this section, it's a form of writing that occurs often in both the Hebrew, uh, well, it's usually in the Hebrew, but Paul is using the style here in the Greek, where it's a, it's a chaotic thing. It's, it goes like this. Um, 
A, God gives equal judgment, verse 6. B, that means life for those who do good, verse 7. C, that means wrath for those who do evil, verse 8. C, that means wrath for those who do evil, verse 9. B, that means glory for those who do good, verse 10. A, that means God is impartial and fair, verse 11. So he emphasizes the point. Now, let me just briefly um, go a little bit deeper into those. He's saying, first of all, that God uses the same standard to judge everybody. I love the fairness of God, and yet it terrifies me. But I love it in this. When someone comes and says, but that's not fair that God would judge that person for this or that person for that. Like, I'll give you an example. That's not fair that God would judge people for not believing in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus. Well, the answer to that is he doesn't. God doesn't judge people for things that they haven't done or that they don't know. God judges fairly according to what we do know. And if you go back into Romans 1, we're told what we know. So people are judged not on the basis of what they don't know. They're judged on the basis of what they do know. They're judged not on the basis of what other people have done. They're judged on the basis of what they have done. And in case you take some comfort out of that, stop and think. Seriously? You seriously want to stand before God at the end of time and say, my hands are clean, my heart is pure. No, it's not. Here, Paul is referring to the day of judgment. And he's talking, it's a public occasion, and it's an occasion in which evidence has to be displayed. The dead are judged according to what they've done. So the second thing is, it's what we do that matters. Look at verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good, um, there'll be trouble and distress. Verse 9, for every human being who does evil, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. So it is what we do that really matters. With you, Lord, Psalm 62, verse 12, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Acts 10, 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And of course, he was referring to Cornelius, who wasn't a Jew, but a God-fearing Gentile, who God heard him because of what he did that was right. Now, we'll come on to a problem in that, as some of you pick up straight away. But here is the bottom line. It's what we do that matters. And when you start saying, well, it's what's in my heart that really matters. I'm sorry, who are you to judge your heart? And secondly, how are others to judge your heart? And thirdly, it's what you do that reflects your heart. And so that's the basis of judgment. It's what we do that matters. Thirdly, doing evil results in judgment. Colossians 3.25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Now, isn't that what we're demanding? Oh, it's not fair. The world's not fair. Well, yes, the world is not fair. And I still cannot forget watching, um, was it Das Untergang, the, uh, the, the film about Hitler, which portrayed him in his last days in the bunker, and it portrayed him, uh, you know, liking dogs and being kind to women, and there was this huge fuss about portraying him as a human, but he was a human. But there's a scene in which just before he commits suicide with his then, he, he married his mistress just before, and just before they die, he says, I shall be at peace. Well, no, you won't. You can't escape what you've done. You escape the Russians, fine, but you can't escape what you've done by killing yourself. 
because there is a day of judgment. And we say, well, that's right, isn't it? But what is this doing evil? Look what he says. Those who are self-seeking, verse 8, and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. The word is erithia. And I love the way that it's used by Aristotle. And in today's Britain, uh, this week's Britain, I think it's quite appropriate. Aristotle describes this as a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Do you know this? Our politicians would be great if they showed some humility. But as soon as they get into power, it's like, oh, I can do this, I can do that. And bang, you know that they're going to fall because they're human. They're not super saints. And that's what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of selfishness and selfish ambition. And here's the thing. Those who are inevitably, or sorry, those who are invariably infatuated with themselves inevitably reject the truth and follow evil. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. So it's interesting that evil is the result of self-seeking. And yet in our culture, what are we told? Go your own way. Do your own thing. Be yourself. But that results in evil. It's such a sick thing to teach children. You can be whatever you want to be. You get this, you can do this. To teach them in the way that we bring them up, to teach them in, in an education system, to teach everyone that they are the God of their own world. That's so sick because it leads to such evil. Whereas he says, doing good results in eternal life. Seeking glory, that's seeking God. Seeking honor, that's God's approval. Seeking immortality. That is seeking to be in God's presence and the unfading joy of his presence. That's good. If you do good, you get eternal life. Now, those of you who are wide awake and thinking and asking questions should ask a question at this point. And the question should be, is this teaching salvation by good works? And the answer is, yes, it is. It is teaching. There are two ways to be saved. And one of them is, if you do good works... But you must do them perfectly. You must do them without any evil at all. And Paul is going to go on. And in uh, chapter 3, he's going to quote Psalm 14, verse 10. There's no one righteous, not even one. And he's going to tell us in chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So yes, there's a way to be saved. If you can do God's will perfectly, you'll be saved but you can't because you're sinful. And I'm afraid that is, you're going to be stuck. That's the way it is going to be. And it's really hard for us to grasp and to accept that. And that's how God judges. God is fair. First the Jew, because they've received the scriptures first, then the Gentile, first the religious, then the non-religious, but on the day of judgment, we'll all stand before God and in the end, justice will be done and instead of saying, oh, that's great, God is fair, that should terrify us because we would get our just desserts. So let me finish this. We are going to look, uh, the next time we come back to this passage from verse 12 onwards, at the advantage of having God's word and law and what that means. But for now, going back to verse 18 and 19, we know about God, we suppress the truth by our wickedness, Having knowledge 
is not sufficient. It doesn't save you. It's what you do with that knowledge, and it's whether you know Christ. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now, how does that... Let me just apply that in terms of those of us who are already Christians, and I'm coming back to the three groups of people that I mentioned, and you can put other examples. Those who condemn all around you. My neighbors are terrible. My, my city's terrible. My country's terrible. These people are terrible. You watch something on television that's awful only to say how awful it is because you get pleasure in saying how awful things are. Well, if it's awful, don't watch it. Switch it off. Well, how does this impact you? You call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Well, of course it's terrible. But you're part of it. I'm part of it. And we need to live in reverent fear. Not in detached judgmentalism. Or you're angry at people, angry at people in your family. Well, yes. Maybe you've got every right to be angry. Maybe they've done some terrible things. But when you look at your own heart, you're not really in a position to condemn them. Or that hurt church thing, which is so real and so painful and so sore. But I'm sorry you're part of the church. When you detach yourself from the church, you don't make it any better and you don't make yourself any better. You need to find a way. And one of the ways is to have a genuine humility that recognizes that people who are behaving awfully to you are actually behaving like you. You're not different. Oh, but Christianity is meant to be this and oh, I've done this and oh, I would never do that. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. When someone in this church does something that hurts me or wounds me, it's really hard, really hard to take. But what is even harder to take is my own responsibility in that and to admit it and to see it. It's difficult. So what do we do? We repent of our judgmentalism. We repent of our hypocrisy. We repent of our misuse of God's name. We repent of all this pious talk that people have when they can use the language of Zion and they can, they can yak, yak, yak spiritually, but still cover up sin. We repent of that. We do look at ourselves, but we need to look at Jesus because this is the key. Those who seek God and persevere in goodness will receive eternal life. Those who go their own way are self-seeking and follow evil and ex will experience God's wrath. So we just ask, what are we seeking? Are we seeking glory? To be in God's presence, to know God? Are we seeking honor? Not from other people, but honor from God, God's approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is my child whom I love. Are we seeking immortality, the unfading joy of being in his presence? And that is the opposite of selfishness. Every time I'm seeking something for myself alone, what I'm doing is the devil's work, even if the thing itself may be good. And I, I do it, and you do it, because we are sinful people, all of us. So you've got these two things that are opposites. You've got this selfishness, and you've got this seeking God. And, and in one sense, that's why the, the gospel is so impossible to sell. It's why someone like Joel Osteen and if you don't know him, don't worry, because he's just such a heretic. And the reason he's a heretic is not because denying the Trinity and stuff. The reason he's a heretic is he comes along with the gospel as a product to sell with his big smile and fancy hair and everything else. And he, and he says to people, you can have your better life now. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is Jesus is beautiful, not that you are. The gospel is Jesus is beautiful and you can be beautified even if you're the most ugly of people in your life, even if you've done the most horrendous things. You can be forgiven. You can be beautified. So the gospel is actually not about you. The gospel is about God and it's about Christ. And every time a Christian goes, well, I'm out of here because I'm not getting what I want. What you're doing is you're saying, Christ, it's not about Christ, it's about me. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And yet, paradoxically, the more we make it about Christ, the more it becomes just beautiful for us. And we benefit from that. You go back to chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Note the beautiful paradox because in the bit we've been looking at, he's saying God judges first the Jew, then the Gentile. But he's saying the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then he says this, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Because you and I cannot stand before God, no matter how religious we are, and say, Lord, here I am, and all the good things I have done. There's a few bad things, but when you weigh them up with the good things, I get in. And God says, no, it's perfection or nothing. Because my heaven is absolute purity, absolute beauty, absolute love. And unless you are that, you don't get in. That's impossible. Of course it's impossible. Except for this, this is the good news. God sent his son. It's the power of salvation of everyone who believes. You dare not as a Christian be proud and judgmental about anybody else. You dare not. Because if you do, you're showing that you don't grasp the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not become, become religious, become moral, become good. The gospel is Christ has done it. Christ is the humble one, the meek one, the lowly one who was judged for us. And he wasn't judged for us so that we could become proud and self-righteous and priggish and judgmental and horrific to people. He was judged for us so that we might become like him, that we might be humble and gracious, and that we might yearn for the lost, and that we might have a real desire to help people, and that we might be burdened for people, and take those burdens to him. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. And you who are a Christian who've heard the gospel, the next time you pass judgment on someone else, condemning them, writing them off, refusing to have anything to do with them, you are judging yourself. And you're saying to God, don't forgive me my sin as I have not forgiven others. Surely, surely, that is just, that's just insane. Please don't do it. And please accept instead the glory and the mercy and the beauty of Christ and rejoice that he forgives us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words which are in some ways so hard for us to hear. We instantly want to kick back. We want to say, well, but I'm not like that, but I don't do that. But but Lord, help us to hear not what our hearts have to say or our proud minds or the people around us, but help us to hear what you have to say. That every time we judge somebody else and condemn them, we're judging and condemning ourselves. 
and help us to see that the reason that we are not judged and condemned is because the one who could, the judge himself, was judged for us. Help us to understand the depth and the wonder and the beauty of that and help us to live in the glorious freedom of the children of God and help us, O Lord, to share that freedom with others. And for any here who as yet do not know you, whether religious or not, grant, O God, that even as they hear this, that they would cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing a song which underlies what we've looked at here and what the whole of Romans is about, that um, we can't redeem ourselves, but there is a redeemer. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. Let's stand and sing to God's praise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>